Welcome, friends, fans, and colleagues, uh, back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, today at uh, our special time and on our special day. And uh, you were just listening to a tiny little teasing snippet from Alea Deo uh, called Time Stood Still. Um, maybe at the end of the show I will uh, play it in its entirety uh, if you stick with me till the, till the uh, end of the show here. Uh, and tonight, uh, what we're talking about, uh, our topic is uh, the uh, title of uh, Julie Morley's new book, uh, Future Sacred, The Connected uh, Creativity of Nature. And uh, Julie Morley, she is a writer, environmental educator, and futurist. Uh, her and I will be discussing her book, uh, which is uh, the topic of tonight's show, uh, Future Sacred, The Connected Creativity of Nature. We can't repeat that enough times. Um, we'll delve into her um, uh, rejection of the survival of the fittest narrative in favor of uh, sacred symbiosis. Uh, creative cooperation, interdependence, and complex thinking. Uh, she'll provide examples from complex city studies, uh, cultural history, philosophy, indigenous spirituality, biomimicry, and ecology to show how nature's intelligence and creativity abound everywhere. We'll also discuss how indigenous cultures lived in relative harmony with nature because they perceived themselves as part of the ordered whole of all life. So uh, let me tell you um, a little bit more about Julie. You already know she's a writer and an environmental educator, and uh, uh, I believe I said she was a futurist. Uh, she writes and lectures uh, on uh, these very topics, uh, ecology, consciousness, complexity. Uh, she earned her BA in classics at the University of Southern California and her MA in transformative leadership at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where she's completing her doctorate on interspecies intersubjectivity. And she lives in Sebastopol, California. So, Julie, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. I'm delighted to be here with you. I, I love your work, and well, I'm, I think it's so vital. Well, uh, ditto, back at you, and uh, thank you for the uh, wonderful compliment. You know, as I uh, discovered you and your work, I thought, um, you know, nothing is more important uh, for people to embrace uh, than what you've written in your book and what you're studying and teaching. And uh, that's why I thought it was so important to have you on the show. You know, even if you are uh, preaching to the choir, you know, it's so important to put this energy out in the world. And no doubt you will teach us some things tonight that we uh, actually don't know uh, about all of this. So, um, you know, why don't, uh, why don't we start with um, this idea of sacred futurism? Um, you know, w explain it. I mean, how does it differ from other kinds of futurism? Sure. Um, yes, I, sacred futurism is something that I came up with because I realized, you know, I've been studying history for quite some time. I studied ancient history and I've studied, um, I've studied modernity, and I've studied a lot of different worldviews that kind of became the current worldview that we have now. Uh, most futurism flows from this Western worldview, this scientific worldview. When I say scientific, of course I mean that 
science becomes a, a belief, an unquestioned and unexamined belief. And everything is based around this reductionist scientific quantification of reality. Um, and so, you know, postmodernism has been a time when we really question all of these um, reductive ways of thinking about nature. And of course, other worldviews, non-Western worldviews, um, indigenous worldviews have always uh, believed in the sacred. And um, the sac- by sacred, I mean uh, what we're devoting ourselves to. So sacrari is a Latin word for um, to devote. To, and so when I think of the sacred, I ask myself, and I'm asking the question generally, what are we going to devote ourselves to to create the future. Right now we're thinking about that a lot because we're faced with the possibility of having no future or at least a future that that's not doesn't seem worth having to everyone. So sacred futurism is a futurism that incorporates many worldviews, many of which have been suppressed, forgotten, or um, forbidden. So I think I think also what I'm hearing you say in there is that what nature teaches us, um, it's been overlooked or minimized, uh, marginalized. Um, in fact, much as women have been overlooked and minimized and marginalized, uh, and we instead have uh, grabbed on to uh, science as uh, the ultimate guide for how we should lead our lives. And unfortunately, science doesn't uh, always um, uh, encapsulate everything, you know, because as we know, uh, science, you know, uh, you have to be able to prove it, you have to be able to see it, you have to be able to measure it. And unfortunately, uh, so much of reality uh, can't be um, measured or uh, proven by scientific standards. Um, am I kind of getting this, or um, <laughs> am I like totally off base? You're completely getting it. And yes, of course, at the same time that um, you know that we created our contemporary notions of science uh, during modernity, women's what was considered women's wisdom, which was the original science, <laughs> was suppressed. And that's what led to witch burning. And, of course, um, you know, we know now that those women were the original scientists and that indigenous people had and continue to have um, science that is different than Western reductionist science. And I value science very much. But I think that for us to have a complete view of reality and nature, yes, um, we can't just measure things from the outside. Encounter and participatory knowing uh, is a way for us to make connections to help us get a more complete understanding of reality. And you've used a word a couple times. Um, maybe you could kind of give us a, um, you know, a grade school um, a definition of. Uh, I think you've you've said scientific reduction. Um, in, in simple terms, what does that mean? So, um, science that came up out of modernity was seeking to reduce. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard of Occam's razor 
So um, meaning that the simplest answer is probably the accurate answer. And so science is often looking for the simplest um, answer to, to a question. And, um, you know, we know that the, com the complexity of the world requires that uh, there are many less simple answers to questions that we ask. Um, so, yes, the re reductionist view is trying to simplify and there's another viewpoint, and I don't know if you're familiar with Freya Matthews, but she's a wonderful panpsychist, ecofeminist scholar. And she talks about the difference between scientific knowledge that seeks to reduce and encounter the knowledge that comes through encounter, which seeks to expand our perspective. So that's what I'm thinking about when, I, when I'm talking about the difference between reductionist and complexity viewpoint. Yeah, and, and I mean, and look, and, and I'm, I'm no scientist, and, uh, you know, this isn't my specialty, but, it, you know, just logic tells me um, it's maybe not smart to have a reductionist viewpoint uh, in a sense because life is complicated, nature is complicated, um, you know, ecosystems are complicated, uh, the cosmos is complicated. So to always be looking for the simplest answer, I'm not sure I would want those folks to be my teachers or mentors. No. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually had um, a Suquamish elder for a teacher, and his view was very much based on complexity. And what he taught me, I mean, obviously I also really respect science and the people who are doing their best to conserve nature, to conserve the creatures uh, on this planet. We need biodiversity to thrive. But indigenous people already really had a lot of intuitions and knowledges that spoke to these points that were based on a more holistic viewpoint, a, a viewpoint that was based around the fact that life is complex and all of these complex relationships right. add up to what we know of as life. Well, and, and, you know, and I hate to always go to this place, but, and you know, and maybe it's just, you know, it's like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But, you know, I think about, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, uh, you know I, I, obviously I'm against patriarchy. Obviously I'm against sexism. Uh, but we think about what we've lost because, um, you know, life has to revolve around this idea of uh, white men, particularly uh, oftentimes white Christian men, you know, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the ones that settled the United States, uh, you know, Manifest Destiny and all of that, um, you know, they, uh, I, and, you know, they have caused us, you know, with, through their prejudice, um, has caused us to lose so much uh, of what the indigenous people already knew uh, by marginalizing them. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I just think that always has to be restated because, um, uh, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be overlooked. It should always be, you know, there is a kind of a parallel track. Um, I, I don't know. Do you think I'm, I'm um, going overboard here a little bit? Oh, not at all. I think that patriarchy is an unbalanced viewpoint. It, um, 
and and talk about a, a hammer and a nail. <laughs> I think patriarchy is is the hammer <laughs> that treats everything like a nail. I mean, that's actually a really good metaphor. Um, everything is not a nail. If you if you crush everything, you'll end up with nothing, and that's what we've been doing. And that's that's my whole point with sacred futurism, is that the futurism that we tend to kind of um, I don't know, that employ is really based around this patriarchal idea of reality, this dominator view um, that we can, you know, that we can manipulate and master nature. Uh, And this was a really, you know, popular view that came out of uh, Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes and um, other thinkers who created what we now know of as science, which actually became our, our, our secular paradigm, our, our scientific paradigm, that we could master nature and create the ideal right. utopia. The, the problem is that utopia seems to only work best for wealthy, pri- you know, privileged white males, <laughs> and then the rest yeah. of the creatures on Earth suffer. Um, and we're seeing the, the sort of regression into this mentality again, of course. I'm hoping this is like a slingshot effect where we're going backwards so we can take a big leap forwards into a sacred future when people are waking up. Well, you to know, if I, 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 I agree, and I hope so too. And I, I've been, you know, and, you know, I know this is maybe drifting a tad off subject, but maybe not. You know, it feels like the president that we have in the White House right now has, has helped us pull that slingshot back, you know, has gotten everybody mobilized, pulling that slingshot back so that, you know, when we get rid of him, it releases and we can kind of just, uh, you know, jump forward and, uh, you know, get ourselves on the right track again, you know, moving into an evolved future rather than a regressive dominator um, uh, uh, totalitarian one that, uh, you know, that, that he would choose, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I think maybe we're living through this. Um, be, you know, it, it's almost as if he, uh, he is a catalyst for evolution. It, and I know that sounds like um, uh, opposites, um, but I, I really do believe that, um, you know, when history looks back at these four years, um, you know, they really might credit him with um, mobilizing people so that we could evolve as a species instead of continuing, uh, you know, down this regressive path. I don't know. There it is. I, every, everybody yeah. doesn't agree, obviously, but... Um, uh, maybe I'm just making lemonade of lemons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I think that is actually very, very wise. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of complexity theory. I think that it really makes sense, this idea that that uh, the world is, is uh, if life is based on, uh, you know, systems, that are becoming more complex as time goes on, and in order for a system to become more complex, it has to break down and kind of reach this crucial point of transformation. 
And what we're seeing now is, is almost it's a civilizational collapse. And um, it's very frightening for many people, of course, but it's also, um, it, it could also lead to great awakening. I mean, every policy that this government puts in place is just absolutely, uh, it, it's a dominator paradigm policy. It's, and and it's, it basically, it's, dist- it's completely destructive. Everything that, that you and I want to sustain and regenerate, they want to destroy. And I think people yeah. are beginning and, to wake up and take notice. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and I, and I think about imagine being the person um, known for that. Imagine that being your legacy. You know, I guess maybe if you're crazy enough to do that kind of stuff, then, you know, maybe you're just so totally unaware that it doesn't matter to you. You know, you think, you know, you're right and the rest of the world is crazy. But, um, man, I would not want to be known for the person, uh, you know, the, the president of destruction, uh, you know, unless by accident as a result of that, like we said, you know, he's the catalyst for, um, you know, for us waking up and, you know, evolving to a, you know, a, a, you know, a more enlightened humanity, I guess, um, we, we should say. I really hope so. <laughs> I, I well, hope well, beyond you hope have a ch- that this is happening. Well, you know, I'm I'm holding that thought. You know, I really do believe that um, our uh, our thoughts manifest, and um, you know, and uh, I don't know what I've seen happen in my life in the last year about thoughts manifesting. I've I've become more and more of a believer, and um, you know, I, I I think we have to hold that thought. You know. Um, it, and if enough of us do, I think I, I think in effect we do we do manifest it. So you know, I'm that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> um, I like that, but, uh, and I do I, think I do... there's a lot of magic. There, I, th- I believe in magic. Yeah. I think there's real magic. There's there's more going on here than than physical kind of actions and reactions, and uh, I've seen it happen. I, I believe in synchronicity. It, it happens in my life all the time. I've seen it happen in other people's lives. And, um, yeah, I agree. And, and, it, and it goes back to what's the, what reductive science can't measure isn't real. <laughs> but we know otherwise because we live it, you know. So. <laughs> um, so let's um, let's go on to something else here that's that's interesting. Um, you have a chapter uh, dedicated to um, now. Tell me if I'm pronouncing this right. And intelligy, intelligy. Um, and what is that? And go ahead. Oh, intelligy. Okay. What what is that? And why is it important to um, sacred futurism? Yes, um, so this is a concept that goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle did something unique. Uh, he came after, you know, there were the pre-Socratics, and the pre-Socratic philosophers believed that uh, they could, uh, basically their ontologies were based around substances or elements, 
So some of them believed the world was made of water. Some of them believed everything was from fire. Um, And Plato kind of diverged from that, and he said uh, he believed in a sort of dualism that was metaphysical in nature. This was a very new thing. And he believed that this world was a sort of bad copy of the perfect ideal world that was somewhere out there. And that the only way to know that was through contemplation. And Aristotle took it to a different level and went back to a sort of a non-dual metaphysics. And he said that there's this beautiful interiority to all things. And that kind of uh, internal spark is, was what creative spark is what makes an acorn, drives an acorn to become an oak but also could drive a person to become something, so a human person to become something as well. And so, you know, it's this idea that creativity, the creative spark is inside of everything, driving what we know of now as evolution, driving everything. And that's, that was a very original concept at, in its time. And and so that that is entelechy. Uh, uh, so yes. So if when we're talking about entelechy, um, we're talking about this this thing inside us that makes us what we are. There's this nice uh, this this nice story that Jean Houston uh, told about her mentor uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin who said that it's like the butterfly inside the caterpillar, that that's what's inside of you, and that we all have this butterfly inside of us that just needs the proper cultivation to be able to emerge. And so, you know, I think of our current education system is not really conducive to making butterflies. (laughs) Our our current system doesn't wants to prevent the emergence of butterflies. That's going to threaten the paradigm. <laughs> true, so, true. Yes. So in other words, then, um, so what you're saying is, so entelechy is important to sacred futurism because in order for, for this sacred future to happen, we have to become the butterfly, we do, yes, and we have to be allowed to become the butterfly, and it's that's much harder for some people than others because of their circumstances. And so, obviously, you know, I live in a world that's fairly privileged compared to most of the world's circumstances. Um, you know, I live, <laughs> I live in California. You know, I mean, uh, so I, I, and I was raised by by hippies. <laughs> You know, they they wanted me to emerge into a butterfly. But when people have no opportunities and are either enslaved or oppressed, um, you know, the dominator paradigm has an investment in making sure people stay, you know, good little munching caterpillars. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. And for in order for us to have this new paradigm, then um, our systems have to support. 
Right. Well, and and you know, you and I are on on such the same page, you know, because I have thought for a long time, just intuitively, that the you know the structure out there uh, is not designed to, uh, to um, you know have people flourish. Um, I mean, why else do the the first thing that's always cut in schools is the arts, you know, music and the arts, you know, because those are some of the things that um, free us, liberate us, help us find who we are, our creativity. You know, they would rather just have us as consumers, uh, you know, looking at our telephones, buying all their crap um, so that we serve the corporation. You know, uh, we are robotic automatons that just, you know, don't think, uh, you know, don't look, you know, don't question our quality of life. Uh, Some of us are cannon fodder to go to war to make the military industrial complex rich. Uh, you know, uh, we, you know, they don't want us to fight Monsanto or Big Pharma uh, or anything like that. They want us to just kind of shut down and turn off and, you know, let them run amok. Um, very short-sighted, but, um, uh, you know, and, and, but I've often wondered, you know, is, it, is this unconscious? You know, or is this really a strategy? I mean, did like, uh, you know, 12 of the most powerful men uh, in the world get together in a room and decide this is what, how they were going to manipulate humanity? Um, <laughs> I know I'm getting crazy here. But, you know, you, you wonder, you know. You, you know, you, you wonder how things could have, you know, gone so bad, uh, despite the fact, you know, maybe the quality of life on the planet is better now than they say it, it's been in, uh, you know, thousands of years. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sorry if that was uh, too divergent. <laughs> oh, that's not divergent at all. And I think that I think that we could say, uh, you know, com- in complexity thinking, we say instead of either or, there could be both and. So, yes, I think it's conscious and unconscious. I think that just as we continue to have things like factory farms and we continue, you know, I mean, we, we, we need certain things, so we suppress our feelings about them so that they don't have to change. And I think there are many people who unwittingly, maybe unconsciously, um, you know, support paradigms that create a lot of suffering. And they may not know about that or they may not want to know. Um, you know, yeah. there's this, yeah, there's this, this um, sort of um, disson- cognitive dissonance that uh, it, it, there's, this, there's this need to justify certain behaviors, just like Descartes actually invented vivisection because he believed so deeply that we were the only sentient creatures on earth, that all other creatures were just basically mechanisms. Um, And he needed to believe that because he wanted to conduct experiments and not have to feel anything about them. So, of course, it was very convenient to have this paradigm. And it's very convenient to have a paradigm in which um, you don't have to be accountable to uh, the suffering of other beings 
Um, yeah. Oh, and man, and man, we could do a whole show on that. <laughs> uh, that that in its that in itself, you know, from women who vote for Trump or prop up the patriarchy or um, patriarchal religion, uh, you know, to people who justified slavery because what you know, black people weren't human, uh, you know, all of that. Um, I mean, it's. Um, uh, and, and, you know, when I think about the, the women who help prop up these oppressors, these dominators, I mean, it's usually either out of fear or because they benefit from it. Um, and I think they fall into the category you mentioned, you know, they're kind of in denial about that, you know, the role that they're playing, um, you know, yeah. I, I mean, any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. I think that um, a lot of people are ignorant, either either ignorant because they haven't been exposed to anything but their own bubble uh, of privilege often, or ignorant because they're being willfully ignorant <laughs> because they don't want to, to see the reality of the, the, the heartbreaking oppression that they endure every day, perhaps, or that other people endure based on their 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 needs or desires um and you know i mean we so many you know kind of conscious people um depend on the things that are created by suffering because we have a system that's set up for us to only be able to do that so we kind of have to oppose the system in order to change it and it's a very it's going to be much more difficult for people without the privileges so it's it really i think it's it's people who have any sort of privilege have to act on behalf of people who don't you know and yeah. i think well that's going to be yeah and and well, well and, and this is and, – and look, and I'm all for it, but it's easier said than done. Trust me, I, I, I know, and I, I'm not callous uh, to that. You know, I mean, I was teaching cakes for the Queen of Heaven, uh, and um, at the break, one of the girls that was in the class – just broke down and cried because all of this was kind of hitting her like a ton of bricks and she said Karen I know everything you're telling us in this class is true but I can't take it um, to hear any more of it um, just makes me too depressed because it would mean I would have to go home and change everything. I would have to change my family, change my husband, uh, you know, change the life that we're leading, and it's too much. It's too much. And she said, I love you, thank you, but i got to go. I can't hear any more of it. And, you know, you can understand that. You know, some people just can't or aren't willing to upset the apple cart. Well, and I think that not everybody needs to upset it. You know, some people are made to be activists, some people aren't. I'm a different kind of activist uh, because I know I can write, I can create. I, that's kind of what I'm good at is reading, thinking, researching, <laughs> you know, and writing. And, and, and so that's how I give. And this goes back to entelechy. Someone's entelechy um, you know, everyone has a diverse entelechy. Everyone has a diverse purpose. You know, I'm not going to be able to contribute the same thing that someone else is. Just like creatures have diverse, diverse entelechies, you know, um, 
creatures, you know, many creatures do things that humans cannot. And they do beautiful, amazing things that humans can't do, you know. And um, so there's just such diversity in life. And everyone is at a different place. So complexity consciousness to me really means both and. So it, it's it's not this militant, you must, you know, fight the system now in my in my way at my time <laughs> because that's really the dominator yeah. paradigm you know yeah so yeah, i can see it's that more, yeah. yeah it's more uh welcome you know awaken uh, awaken uh, you're invited to awaken and these are some maybe simple things we can do in order to awaken and that and that like may that. create yeah, that may create the desire to change things. But sometimes yeah. a lot of change at once can be destructive for people's lives. <clears throat> so, well, yeah. and you know, and I, I was just sitting in a meeting with some uh, women and men, and um, and it was interesting. We were having this conversation, um, you know, with, without you know, go into a lot of detail, we were choosing between the word advocate or activist. And they mm-hmm. made the point that the word, that activist scared people. And it would be better if we used the word advocate instead. And um, I don't know, I, I think that kind of relates to what we're saying here, you know. Um, and, and I like the idea that you don't have to be militant. You can do what you can do. And, um, and, you know, and that's probably enough because we're all going to be doing something different. We each have a thread of the tapestry. And, um, and by us, you know, all using our unique um, IntelliKey, um, with any luck, maybe we'll get it done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think so. And I think that, you know, just a willingness to listen to rethink our thoughts because one of one of the the wonderful insights of complexity thinkers um, that have that have been my mentors is that really complexity thinking is about um, rethinking our thinking, thinking about thinking. Mm-hmm. How are we thinking here? Mm-hmm. What what does what do our thoughts have to do with creating the world? And and what kind of thoughts create what kind of world? And so beginning by um, thinking about thinking. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a little break right now, Julie. Um, and uh, when we come back, I want to know a little bit more about your chapter entitled The Vulva and the Flower. Um, so that's what we'll do uh, in just a minute. But... Uh, in the meantime here, um, I want to play something for listeners uh, from a review of Joe Corson's book, uh, Celebrate Wildness. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Corson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book how special this work is and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s and through the years only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, 
This book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Farifaria's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Farifaria. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality, hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Farifaria website at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. So just to clarify for listeners, Joe Carson's lovely book, Celebrate Wildness, is available only at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot O-R-G. So, um, if you've just tuned in with us, uh, I'm speaking to Julie Morley. She's a writer and environmental educator and futurist, and uh, she has a wonderful book out uh, called Future Sacred, The Connected Creativity of Nature, and that's what we've been chatting about um, since the show started about half hour ago. And... um, Uh, We are just about to uh, talk about her chapter uh, entitled The Vulva and the Flower. (laughs) Um, So, Julie, uh, tell us about that. Um, And I think it has something to do with uh, meta patterns. Uh, What are they? And how does that fit into our conversation today? Yes, meta patterns. And, yes, I (laughs) I actually fought to keep that in there, the vulva and the flower, (laughs) because uh, I love flowers. And, you know, not not everyone knows that flowers are a plant's sex organ. So if we're giving to a a bouquet of flowers to our lover, we're it's it's kind of a beautiful invitation. Um, And. Really, the reason why a, and obviously uh, at times uh, women's genitalia has been referred to as our flowers, and I I actually really like that. I think that's beautiful because um, the flower and the vulva actually have a very similar uh, architecture, and that's because they are meta patterns, and a, a, a meta pattern is a pattern of patterns. And we can see that these patterns are the rule in our cosmos. So we have something called the Fibonacci sequence that governs the seed distribution pattern in a sunflower uh, and also the the pattern of some spiral arm galaxies. And, of course, uh, meta patterns are what make the vulva and the flower very similar. And, and, And the reason is that... That shape is particularly good for reproductive strategies. So there's this connected creativity in the cosmos that just loves a good pattern and tends to use it again and again when it works well. But what I guess the part I don't understand is, okay, we know they have, you know, we have these patterns uh, which create these structures in nature, 
but you but is it are are we then able to sort of translate that into systems or how we do things? Um, I mean, does it go beyond just having this you know u- unique and wonderful meta pattern? <laughs> Uh, I see what you mean. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, we can. Uh, we obviously we uh, we do have we do have an intuition about patterns because many ancient sacred wisdoms and knowledges uh, held patterns as sacred, and a lot of these patterns were the very patterns that we find throughout nature that govern uh, our our evolution, really. Um, so, you know, you find similar patterns that uh, govern evolutionary processes. I mean, we wouldn't, life wouldn't be able to sustain, sustain itself without these, these patterns. And, yes, uh, you know, humans do something called biomimicry. So we, we mimic uh, this creativity that we find throughout the natural world. Um, and, yes, we can reproduce these patterns I mean, that's how we produce rockets that can go to other other planets, and that's how we uh, made a sailboat. That's how we created airplanes. <laughs> we watched birds, and we wanted to fly. <laughs> so yes, these, okay. these patterns, and that that's how they relate to systems. And and of course, a really good pattern is is used again and again uh, throughout evolution and and it sustains biodiversity okay all right um and yeah. and i know these are these are complex subjects and you know we we uh kind of have to touch on some and there's so many other uh things in your book i, I want to give you a chance to talk about as well um and in the book you make a strong argument for a world that's brimming with uh sentience um and that sentience is maybe more common than than we think it's more common than it's rare um why why is this controversial i mean does it go back to like the who was it Descartes who wanted to uh, experiment on the animals so he decided they weren't sentient yeah so i think that yes the reason why it's controversial in in our culture is because our culture was really kind of created, our current culture was created in in modernity and um, our systems of thought, like Cartesian thought. Uh, And, but of course it wasn't, this this thought is not controversial in non-Western and indigenous uh, cultures. This is actually, um, the rule is that there's, connected sentience throughout and that consciousness is a continuum throughout all of life. Um, you know, as I said before, Descartes was a troubled fellow and his intellectual milieu came up during a, a really uh, time of, of uh, you know, after the bloody religious wars and they were looking for this universalist set of laws that governed everything and, and his, his view was that um, that consciousness was really only present in the human brain. In fact, he, he saw that the seat of consciousness was the pineal gland, but only the human pineal gland. So, um, but I would say that, and I, I like to call this the Cartesian sleep. 
that paradigm, we were all sort of put into this Cartesian sleep to everything around us by way of that paradigm. And I like to say that right now we are awakening from this Cartesian sleep to this animate and sentient connected world full of creativity. And I think that's painful. Well, and and you look at um, the destruction of the environment, you know, uh, you look at the oppression, the domination, um, you know, uh, of, of other species, you know, the people who want to go out there and, and kill a lion or an elephant or a giraffe or uh, rape the earth. Um, I mean, it's almost as if they um, have to believe uh, nature is insentient, uh, I would think, anyway, in, in order to do what they do. Um, otherwise, um, I don't know, would they see themselves as murderers? I mean, would, would society see them as murderers? It's, it's almost as if we have to buy into this idea that humans are the only sentient beings in order to allow so many, um, uh, you know, portions of life to go on as it is. I mean, am I confused about this or does that make sense? I think it's com- that makes complete sense. Um, it's it's very painful to awaken. I mean, in any sense, it's painful to awaken at times. But to awaken to a world built on suffering that we are participating in just by being in it is that is very painful. And um, it's it, I can understand how it's too much for many people. Many days, it's too much for me. You know, I have, I think about these things all day long. Sometimes I just need to go out and just connect with the beauty of it all to, to stop myself from being incredibly depressed. It's, it's hard to awaken. And, you know, the Cartesian mind, the Cartesian uh, worldview created tremendous suffering. And so right now, and, and also unraveling of all of the connected creativity that sustains life. So now that we're awakening and we're, we're wanting to quickly learn how to regenerate life on this planet, um, we have to take responsibility for a lot. We have to answer to a lot and, or for a lot. And it, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, because we really do have to rethink everything, don't we? I mean, if we really believed um, just about everything was sentient, um, we would, I mean, uh, we would have to rethink um, probably just in, incredibly huge swaths, swaths of, our, uh, of our life, you know, how we live. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't, I mean, would we go to the grocery store like we do now? Would we have factory farms? Would we, you know, allow logging? Would we throw pesticides, you know, on the weeds outside? I mean, you know, it, it's like never ending. Where does it stop? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sure I'm not even thinking of uh, anything but a minutia. Yeah, I mean, how how would we even breathe knowing that microorganisms are you know i mean it's it's really in and that's why i like to think of it as an animate sentient and subjective world when you think of everything having possessing some sort of 
of sentience, some sort of interiority, then you have to start asking questions. That doesn't mean you're going to have answers, or simple answers anyway. Um, it just, to me, as a as a as a environmental philosopher, as someone who thinks about these things a lot, it means that we need to ask vital questions, and we're not always going to have simple answers because there are so many complexities. Um, you know, creatures need to eat to survive. They need to ingest things. You know, how, how, do we, how do we rethink that? How do we rethink the cycles of life? And how do we rethink farming? How do we rethink um, everything? Yes, as you said. Right. Uh, but I do think yeah. that rethinking involves asking questions, asking vital questions and not being afraid to ask them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's certainly better, even if we don't have an answer, to ask it uh, than bury our head in the sand and continue the destruction. Um, I want to get to a couple more things before we go, and um, we're we're starting to run out of time. But let's try to, if we can, get to them as quickly as possible. Um, I want to know about panpsychism. Um, you've mentioned it a couple times. What is it, and why is it an important part of the book? Yes, um, panpsychism is a very old worldview that it, that is reemerging really with what we're finding out about life, and and science has had a lot to do with this because um, now that we're finding out a lot about uh, the the diversity of consciousness, you know that cetaceans have language, they have uh, they have complex cultures, and of course. Ravens and crows are literally changing what we think about consciousness in in other and non-human creatures. Um, we're you know we're starting to realize that panpsychism, which is an old philosophy, is actually probably much more accurate. And that basically means panpsychism really means that everything has ensoulment is ensouled. Um, Okay. And, yes, it means that everything has some sort of soul or subjectivity or consciousness. So it kind of goes back to the sentience again. Yes, yes. And, you know, there's another modified kind of more complementary to Western science version of that called pan-experientialism, uh, that's, that also can can be held by people who are not interested in meta, metaphysics, um, and that just denotes that there is experience uh, on on many scales, uh, some sort of interiority, even to cells. Uh, cells are known to communicate through, um, you know, something called. Uh, I mean, some, they communicate through a lot of a lot of. Uh, vehicles but they are known to communicate so we know that they have to have some sort of interiority in order to want to communicate with each other so um and then quorum sensing is about how bacterium communicate um so on every scale you know from cells to cetaceans uh there's something going on there's interiority subjectivity and there's some sort of cultural life happening so panpsychism right, right. is actually more sane of a of a worldview <laughs> in light of what we know. 
Okay, okay. Now, um, you coined the word Frankenscience um, as opposed to ethical, compassionate science. Why is that a crucial distinction at this point in history? This gets back to uh, what I was saying about Francis Bacon and Descartes. Um, Francis Bacon was known for saying that he would that, that his version of empiricism, he invented our idea of scientific empiricism, and that he would vex nature into submission. And, of course, nature was a, was a feminine personification. So it was, it was almost like rape science. I mean, it's, it's really kind of very, um, you know, disturbing when you think about it. So, um, you know, many thinkers at the time thought of nature as this feminine force that had to be subjugated. And out of that came this worldview that uh, you could really do anything in the name of science. It's justifiable. Um, Empiricism requires the absence of these pesky feelings (laughs) and these these pesky, um, you know, and that sentience really doesn't come into the picture. It's really about what you can quantify and measure and about progress. Progress was modernity's big watchword, you know. I mean, enlightenment was based around this idea that we could progress sufficiently through scientific empiricism. The problem with that, of course, is that we know that, you know, saying that you need to break a few eggs to make an omelet is great if you are on top of the hierarchy, but when you're the one who, or your loved ones are the, the eggs that are being broken, uh, it's, not, it's not as pleasant. So um, we have to start asking what our scientific practices are creating, uh, who is benefiting from them, and who is suffering. And, I mean, we can't forget that the father of gynecology uh, used enslaved women uh, without anesthesia to practice, to experiment on because he said they didn't have as much, they were, you know, they didn't have as many feelings. They didn't feel as much. Um, And that was a general sort of, and I'm trying to remember his name Uh, off the top of my head. I can't remember, but um, if you look it up, you'll see that, the father of gynecology had some pretty dubious practices and caused a lot of suffering for women of color. Well, that guy, and, Kellogg, that guy uh, Kellogg did too. Uh, the, you know, the Kellogg's, um, the serial guy. I mean, he had all yeah. of these retreats, and at some of those retreats, he did some pretty wonky, uh, crazy shit too. That we would, um, you know, we would probably put him put him in jail for today. Um, it's all not coming back to me right now. But this, you reminded me of it with this father of gynecology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our scientific practices are based on on just horrific suffering, and I think that we are going to need to start to ask questions because now we're finding out that small creatures that we thought, you know, were just basically automatons and we could kind of without a, without a thought practice medicine on them, um, you know, we are now finding that they have complex feelings and cultures. And 
and this is a very complex issue. I mean, you know, when you have a child, you, you recognize that if your child needs medicine and that medicine is made through suffering, that makes things very complex, right? So these are all complexities that we have to keep asking questions about. They're not going to change right away, but we're going to need to adapt because of what we're finding right. out. And, yes, Frankenscience is, creates a nightmare. Um, and, of course, Mary Shelley, whose mother was a proto-feminist, was really thinking about what happens when scientists are, science becomes this great narcissistic, unfeeling, um, unbridled pursuit of progress. Right. Well, and, and, you know, you've made me think about the indigenous people. We always see that, you know, before they took the life of an animal, um, you know, they or they would thank the, thank the animal for its life, um, you know, before they ate it. Um, you know, at least, I mean, they were showing more um, compassion than, uh, you know, than we do, you know, or you think about the people who just hunt for sport, not even for food. Um, you know, so the indigenous people were so much more advanced than us, but, you know, because they weren't the same color, didn't have the same God, they were non-human, you know, as well to us. I mean, we're so messed up. Um, (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) No, Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think respect is the biggest the biggest thing that we could do is is find out how what how do we respect how do we have respect for for life yeah yeah and like you said it is very complex um, well, Julie, we're about out of time, and uh, I have to tell you, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and we could have gone so much deeper had, uh, you know, if time allowed. Um, you know, I want to kind of give you the final word here. I mean, um, is, is there anything we didn't talk about that you feel is important? Um, you know, what, do you, what thoughts do you want to leave listeners with? Well, I think we touched on so many important things, and I think that the last thing that I would leave people with is this idea that we're always in participation with what we call nature. It doesn't matter where we live, who we are. Uh, We are nature. We grew out of nature. And uh, nature is really just this complex, complicated process. And so, you know, it's, we are in creative participation with that process and we and it so it matters how we participate so we can just ask ourselves how might we participate with respect and care for the processes that sustain life and sustain uh, all all that we love really so um, I'm wondering, with your book, um, is, is this, I, I mean, you know, obviously you want people to buy your book, and it sounds so interesting. I highly encourage it. But for, you know, maybe for beginners who are just starting to, you know, scratch the surface of these sorts of ideas, you know, it sounds like, you know, some of these might be, you know, complex. You know, where can they start? You know, how do they, you know, uh, you know, what, what's the best place to um, start to understand these these complexities and and some of these theories and everything you've, um, you know, you've brought up or or 
do you kind of talk in your book, you know, on a level that, you know, a non-scientist can grasp it? Yes, I wrote the book to be accessible, but at the same time, um, I realized that I talk about some things that might be kind of complex. So I'm a big proponent of skimming books <laughs> and taking what you want and leaving what doesn't make sense or just looking at the, the source materials if you want some good references. I mean, I really wrote my book as a sort of like a, a, a nice handbook about this idea that our paradigm was shaped and that we can reshape it. So, um, you know, yeah, I would, if somebody wants to buy my book and peruse it, um, and that, you know, and there are parts that just feel too dense, that's okay, too. And that's what I do with a lot of my books. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, please tell us, um, uh, you know, where can we hear more from you? Uh, do you have a website? Where's the best place to get your book? Um, are you going to be giving any classes or workshops or uh, anything like that in the near future? So you can always go to my website, sacredfutures.com, and uh, I have updates on my website. I'm supposed to be giving a class sometime in the fall, but the details are a little are, are not have not uh, come through yet. So uh, you can always check updates on that website, and I do radio interviews. So. You know, just check the dates on my website if you want to keep up with me. And I, I write articles, and I post them there as well. Okay, sounds good. And have you gotten, I know it sounds like you've been so busy, have you gotten around to making a Facebook page yet? I do. I have a Facebook page, and that is also Sacred Futures. So you can go to my Facebook okay. page, and I have updates on there as well. Okay. Well, Julie, this has been great. Um, I've enjoyed chatting with you. You kind of really got the juices in the brain going tonight. And um, um, thank you so much for this book and, and for raising all of our awareness out here. Um, you're doing good stuff. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And it was such a pleasure to be with you. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Thanks so much. All right. And listen, keep in touch, and if uh, something comes up that uh, you feel like, you know, we can expand the conversation or we need to take the conversation in a different direction, don't hesitate to pop me an email, and we'll do it, okay? Oh, I certainly will. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome, and, and good night. Have a great summer. You too. Okay. Uh, well, before we leave tonight, uh, there's something else here for you. Uh, it's about Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. So please stick with me and have a listen. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on DearMist.com. 
I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Dancing with Gaia, um, it, as they said, uh, Dancing with Gaia is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. Um, so we are almost uh, finished the month of June. Uh, can you believe it? Uh, I just wanted to let you know about uh, my last two guests uh, that I'll be having on the show this month. Uh, this Wednesday, yes, this Wednesday is another show, and I will have with me uh, a lovely woman by the name of Ute Lupertz, and uh, she is an animal psychic, and um, this is the final show I'll be doing uh, on the topic of, uh, of animal uh, you know, psychics and communicating with animals, and I'm doing this last one because it's a little bit different from the previous ones. Uh, Ute is going to be talking about how to prepare for the end of your pet's life. Uh, it's really insights into the work of a holistic pet, death doula. And um, I'm sure many of us uh, have been, you know, very close to our animal companions. And when we get to that point and uh, we have to deal with a pet's life, uh, end of a pet's life, it's very difficult. And Ute is uh, going to give us uh, some advice on that. And then the final Wednesday of the month, uh, I have with me uh, Maureen St. Germain. And she's written a book about uh, the Akashic Records. And uh, the title of that book is Opening the Akashic Records, Meet Your Record Keepers, and Discover Your Soul's Purpose. So uh, those are going to be some of the topics we're going to be covering uh, as we finish out the month of June. And the final thing I'd like to say is um, if you haven't heard this already, uh, if you're new to the show or even if you're not, but maybe you didn't realize because we're all busy, um, I have a new uh, email address. It is uh, karentate108 at yahoo.com. That is the way to reach me. Uh, and also I have a new website, uh, Effective This Year. Uh, it is now karentate.net. Uh, so uh, if you've uh, known me for a long time, you probably knew karentate.com. Well, uh, that was hijacked by someone in, uh, I think, Cambodia. And I will not pay a ransom 
them to get it back. So instead, I just created a whole new uh, website, KarenTate.net. I hope you will go there. I love it a lot. Quite frankly, I feel like this was one of the gifts of the universe. At first, uh, I was crushed that I had to consider creating a whole new website, but um, I am actually so much happier uh, with the new one, KarenTate.net. I think it is much more reflective of me, uh, who I am today. Um, I hope you'll go there. You can find out about classes, uh, the radio show, the newsletter, and books. Um, you can also make a donation while you're there uh, to help me further uh, my work, if you will. Uh, it helps me pay to keep the radio show on the air uh, because I do pay for the airtime. Uh, guests don't. Um, sometimes commercials help. Uh, but uh, I do this show as a service to the community. So if you go to KarenTate.net and you scroll down there or a couple places that enable you to go to PayPal and make a donation of any amount. So uh, thank you, dear listeners. I know life is busy. Life is complicated. Uh, everything is complex. Uh, so when you take the time to tune into my show and uh, hear uh, the wisdom of my guests, I truly do appreciate it. You are the guest in my tank that keeps me going. Uh, please do keep your uh, show ideas coming, uh, your, your gratitude, your suggestions. Um, you know, your insight coming to me, uh, it, it really helps. Because when I'm sitting here doing a show and I'm just communicating with a guest, um, I, I, I tend to forget about all the seeds that are being planted out there. I tend to forget how many people view the show as a lifeline. Uh, and when you write me and you tell me how important the show is to you, uh, it definitely helps me keep going. Uh, and I've been doing this about 13 years now, I think. Uh, I'd actually have to go back and check, but I think uh, uh, we've been doing it that long. So please avail yourself of the wonderful archives. Um, they are as timely today uh, as they were 10 years ago, 13 years ago, uh, because, you know, change in the world is a slow business. And, um, you know, uh, change doesn't happen overnight. So many of the guests I talked to 10 years ago, 13 years ago, uh, it's really interesting to hear what they have to say because it's just as important or maybe we've actually made some progress. So the context uh, is, is really fun. All right, well, that about does it. Again, I'll be back Wednesday with Ute, and um, I hope you will tune in. Uh, go to my show page on Blog Talk, Voices of the Sacred Feminine show page. Uh, hit the follow button, and that will make things a lot more convenient for you. Uh, notice of, e of uh, the weekly show will show up in your inbox, and you can just click the Listen button, and then you don't have to think about... Um, you know, uh, tuning in, or did you get the email? Uh, did you see the post on Facebook? Uh, it will just be there for you, uh, you know, convenient to just go to your inbox and click on listen if the show is something that uh, piques your curiosity. 
All right. Uh, that is about all uh, for me tonight. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for your listener loyalty, as I've already said. And uh, I am just going to go ahead and close tonight's show uh, in tribute to the great goddess Sepmet, the lion-headed uh, lady of tenacity manifested. Uh, this is by Abigail Spinner McBride, and it is called Om Sepmet. Please enjoy. <laughs> 